Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This is Mornings with Simi on 980 CKNW. So we've been talking about the really kind of disappointing scenes that we saw from Granville Street in downtown Vancouver on Halloween. And it is behavior like that that we know that is causing a lot of problems all over the world and other countries. Take a look at what's happening in Europe, France, Belgium. Germany, Austria, they are all under some form of lockdown once again to varying degrees. The UK about to enter one as well. So we thought, let's check in with what's going on there. Joining us now is Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, of course, former CKNW reporter. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Let's talk about what's happening in Denmark, where you are. What's been going on? Well, COVID here is essentially a runaway train, Simi. It's just crazy how fast the situation has snowballed. I'll use two examples. I think the last time you and I chatted was roughly about two weeks ago. Uh, In that conversation, I specifically mentioned that Germany and Italy had been sort of outliers and holding the line while the rest of Europe kind of went up in flames and infection cases went, you know, soaring skyward. Well, in the two weeks since you and I have chatted, both Germany and Italy have had massive explosions and seen some of the highest numbers they have ever seen in the pandemic yet. And as you mentioned, uh, Germany now is among four nations going into a lockdown, including France, which went in on Friday. Germany's begins today. Uh, England goes in on Thursday. And as of yesterday, Austria has also announced a lockdown and Portugal is about to declare a national health emergency. Uh, the numbers we're seeing in Europe, Simi, quite frankly, are stunning. What happened? That's a good question, and I don't, I don't know if I can give you a finite answer on that. I think as I sort of mull it over, the one big factor, I believe, was just letting our guard down, um, trying to go back to sort of a quote-unquote normal. Um, you know, again, when we were here in the summertime, it was almost like that sense of fear, that sense of caution, that sense of like, you know, this invisible enemy is out there and we need to be scared of it, kind of evaporated. You know, the sun mm-hmm. was out, the weather was warm. People were once again kind of jamming the pubs on the, you know, the pub balconies on the streets. People were out shopping, all that kind of jazz. And I think that we just forgot to be scared of it. And coronavirus here in Europe has reminded us very, very quickly that we need to be fearful. Uh, Let's talk about Sweden as well, because what's really startling to me and what tells you how much has changed is they are changing their approach to this. Yeah, Sweden, which, as we know, has been sort of a hands-off approach uh, using sort of strong suggestions. We don't, you know, we ask you to do this, we ask you to do that, as opposed to countries like nearby Denmark, where I am, where they said, okay, we are passing laws, and you cannot do this, you cannot do that, and if you do it, then you're going to pay a heavy price. Uh, Sweden has now changed that approach. They're seeking to restrict the movement of their citizens, specifically in public transit. They brought in local restrictions in some of the hotspot areas. Uh, to put it kind of in historical context, I mean, I was looking through my notes on Sweden the other day, and this honors Tynell, who's the chief epidemiologist in mm-hmm. Sweden, told the Financial Times in the spring, and I'll quote here, in the autumn, there'll be a second wave. Sweden will have a high level of immunity, and the number of cases will probably be quite low, unquote. Now, Simi, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday of last week, Sweden had a combined 8,428 virus infections. <laughs> peaking with 3,396 on Wednesday, which is the highest the country has ever seen. By some fluke of mathematical luck, Simi, that is exactly to the case, double its first wave peak in June 24th of 1,698. Infections are going up all over the place in Sweden. They've up, I think it's about over 400% now in the last two weeks in Stockholm alone. So that whole plan, the one that they, you know, were they were going their own way and they were going to do this differently, sounds like it didn't work. Yeah, and uh, there's been a big investigation, uh, the Newsweek and the Time did, that basically, you know, piggybacked on some Swedish journalists that got access to a treasure trove of emails, uh, etc., from uh, Mr. Tynell and others. Uh, I mean, the government and health officials that basically were brainstorming a herd immunity approach. Now, in the media, they've kind of, 
played that down a bit, although Mr. Tynell has said time and time again, oh, it'll be a byproduct of our strategy, but their strategy clearly has not worked. Deaths in Sweden are much higher than, you know, Denmark, Norway, Finland combined, roughly double right now. Their cases are even higher than that of the countries combined. I mean, their deaths are actually nine times that in Denmark. And where in the summer they said, listen, guys, our strategy is working. It's a long-term strategy. We can stick with this for years. That's That's what they were saying. Now they're throwing that out. They're introducing restrictions. The idea that Sweden could develop some sort of magical immunity and survive a second wave better than anybody else, that myth has been absolutely shattered in the last week. Oh, boy. All right, Shane, thank you so much for the update. Yeah, always good to hear from you. You guys stay safe. You too. That is Shane Woodford, freelancer in Denmark, former CKNW reporter, giving us an idea of what's happening in that part of the world. And it's not good. We're talking country after country, once again, going into some form of lockdown. And in the UK, that lockdown, which begins in the next couple of days, is pretty severe. Uh, and they're in really bad straits there. They Essentially, it needs to be done France has some, Germany, Austria going back into it, Belgium going into it as well. And then you heard the numbers from Sweden. Their plan didn't work. I had so many emails in the springtime and through the summer about, look at what Sweden's doing. We should do what Sweden's doing. That has failed totally and completely. And now Sweden is also going to have to change their tactics as well. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what's been going on during the pandemic for migrant caregivers. There's about 25,000 of them in Canada. And a new report is detailing some of the awful working conditions that the pandemic is causing for them. To talk more about that, we're joined now by Diana De Silva, an organizer with the Caregivers Action Centre. Diana, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Can you give us an idea of this particular group of workers and what kind of jobs are they doing? Of course. Migrant care workers are um, mostly racialized women coming uh, abroad to primarily do in-home care raising uh, of children uh, and also taking care of the elderly and disabled. Um, And their work ultimately allows for employers to go to work, right, for the economy to function, for our communities to be healthy. Uh, and they're doing this work in, in conditions of uh, precariousness and exploitation. And so what has happened then during the pandemic? What we heard uh, from migrant care workers uh, is that 48% of them have reported working really long hours. We're talking uh, almost 12-hour days, um, 60-hour weeks, and some of them are not being paid for those extra hours or, in some cases, working for free. Uh, We also heard that one in three workers were being trapped inside their employers' homes, which, Mm. which means they weren't being able to go out to buy food, send money back home, send have a bit of a social and private life. And this is ultimately because um, workers have temporary immigration status, uh, which means that they're unable to protect themselves uh, against this exploitation because they rely on their employers for permanent residency status. Right. But uh, is there any place they can go for help? Like they could find another job, albeit it would be a paperwork hassle and trouble for them. But do they do they feel like those options aren't available to them? Yes, especially during the pandemic, workers who have lost their job, which were about one in three uh, reported losing their jobs, also reported having a very hard time finding a new employer that were that was willing to do that new paperwork to be able to get a, a new work permit and have their work count towards their permanent residency application. So what can they do? What options are available? Like, is there a way to reach out to them? Is there a place they can call? How do you get that message through to them? Well, this report was released by several uh, migrant care worker groups who are doing that work uh, to reach out to workers and uh, hear from them what is going on. And the solution that migrant care workers are calling for uh, 
is permanent residency status now. So they are able to leave their employers if they are being abused. So they're able to get access to health care and some of these things that right now are tied to their work permit um, and and are they are not able to get unless they have permanent residency. Okay, so is this you're trying to raise awareness over this and give them some options? Of course. Uh, we are ultimately amplifying these voices of migrant care workers so that they are heard and so that others know that this is completely unfair that migrant care workers do not have just simple basic rights that everyone else does um, and uh, ultimately pushing for the federal government to end this exploitation and give workers permanent residency. So, but there's a process they work towards for permanent residency, isn't there? Yes. So the process right now is they need to complete 24 months of work service in order to get permanent residency, as well as uh, pass English and educational requirements that workers are finding to be very difficult to do, especially during the pandemic. So a lot of workers are living in limbo right now. Right. Okay. So then what is your message to the employers out there as well, Diana? Like if they think that, oh, they have to do the, oh, it's just the pandemic. uh, What would you tell them? The, the message right now is, is to not so much the employers, but to the federal government that these federal immigration rules uh, are not working. And migrant care workers made that clear in this report. Uh, and this is why care workers are calling for permanent residency status so that they can be able to protect themselves from these employers and leave these situations. Uh, and ultimately uh, be able to have decent work, to be able to have access to health care and income support, to be able to have their basic rights. All right. Well, Diana, thank you for talking to us about it this morning. No problem. Thank you. That is Diana De Silva, an organizer with the Caregivers Action Centre, uh, one of the advocacy group that surveyed about 200 workers, caregivers, about their experience working in Canada during the COVID pandemic. And they're just too much concern over the kinds of conditions that some of these workers are experiencing. There are about 25,000 migrant caregivers in Canada right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So we're getting an update on what is happening in this last 24 hours of the American presidential election campaign. For more on that, we're joined now by Reggie Cicchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Reggie, you're almost there. Uh, Almost there. Almost. (laughs) So close. So tell me, what are the two candidates up to today? Uh, they are barnstorming uh, those those battleground states, kind of a blitz for President Trump again. He's set to hit, to hit up four states over the course of the day, winding down his campaign in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is the same place where he wound down his campaign uh, in 2016. Joe Biden is set to go to both Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, showing that Pennsylvania is still the prize that both candidates want. But stepping into Ohio again shows that Democrats think that there is a road to victory by going through Republican territory. Let's talk about some of those tight states. So Ohio is one of them where the polls seem to show quite a bit of a tie. What's Florida like as well? Florida shows that Joe Biden is still holding a slight lead. Uh, it's within the margin, so we have to be careful about that. You know, Joe Biden holds right. a big lead nationally with double digits, but in these battleground states, it's within the margin, and that really could be make or break. Democrats had really strong uh, early turnout numbers. Republicans are now starting to see more registered voters show up at the poll, so we could see these numbers start to whittle down a little bit more. Still a battleground state and still a state that Joe Biden wants, Donald Trump needs. What about Ohio? Well, look, Ohio is is likely going to wind up going to the uh, going to the Democrats from what we're seeing in polls and what we're kind of seeing in in some of the turnout at the polls. If it goes Democratic, that's going to be huge uh, because I, Ohio typically uh, helps figure out who's going to win the White House based on track records. Uh, that said, you know, Donald Trump is not giving up on it. Joe Biden is going in because he's saying, look, if we can get this, that's going to be great. But Joe Biden doesn't need this on his path to 270. Joe Biden's path really relies on Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin and Minnesota. So essentially, it sounds like what the Trump campaign is hoping for is like polling mistakes 
that were bigger than what happened four years ago. Yeah, they're looking for polling errors, but they're also relying on some of these tactics that are underway right now, like in Texas, where they're trying to throw out 127,000 ballots in Harris County, which is Houston, uh, which leans Democrat. Uh, and they're trying to throw these ballots out saying they shouldn't count because they were at drive up uh, drop off locations, obviously out of safety because of the pandemic or in places like Pennsylvania, hoping that maybe the Supreme Court is going to come back and stop late ca- uh, late arriving ballots from being counted. That's kind of where some of the strategy is for Republicans. Outside of that, they are simply banking on their party showing up at the polls on the day of Election Day, thinking maybe they didn't take part in in those, you know, millions upon millions of mailed in ballots earlier. Right. And they, they believe that there is also what, like a hidden Trump voter. Well, so look, that existed in 2016. The polls didn't really find these Trump voters because the way that they were talking to voters, oftentimes they were skewed towards Hillary Clinton. I think there's been a correction in the polls right now. We're seeing reports that these could be overcorrected. So there could be more of an advantage given to Trump than actually exists right now. And what we're hearing from some behind the scenes uh, voters are that, or at least uh, uh, voting collectors, uh, is that there might be a hidden Biden vote where these people in Republican districts maybe not telling their social friends or the pollsters that they felt like voting for Biden this time around because they feel there's a stigma associated with it. Well, that just sounds like everything is up for grabs then. Well, look, everything is up for grabs. The race is not over. It doesn't end until tomorrow. We've got early balloting today, and the numbers are still going to continue to change. What I would focus on for tomorrow, if you're looking at the map, see how Arizona goes. It's reliably Mm. Republican. It's been red for decades. If Democrats can make gains there, both in the Senate and potentially Joe Biden, because they count their votes early, so there will be a big dump that comes from Arizona quickly, that could give an idea as to where things stand. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about, other than the presidential race, uh, keeping all the other houses, like the Senate, the House of Representatives... Uh, you know, has always been dominated, it seems like, forever for, by the Republicans. Could that be about to change? It could be. Look, Republic, uh, uh, rather, Democrats hold the House right now. Uh, there's a chance here for 7 to 15 pickup seats in the House, which would just continue that stronghold. The Senate is what is uh, potentially going to be out of Republican grips by the end of the day tomorrow. There is somewhere between 3, 5, 7, at a best case, 9 or 10 pickups for the Senate, uh, for the Democrats right now. That would ultimately give them, if Joe Biden wins, a full grip of both the legislative and the executive branch across this country, they wouldn't need to go to the Supreme Court and deal with court packing because they would have the votes to potentially pass the legislation that they want uh, that that, right. that would kind of take that judicial issue off the shoulders of Joe Biden. And how's Lindsey Graham doing in that last little look? Look, it's still a contentious and very tight rate uh, uh, race between him uh, and Jamie Harrison, the person who is running for the Democrats right now. Uh, Lindsey Graham has been suffering financially, uh, you know, for the last several weeks. He again banking on Republican turnout. If Lindsey Graham loses that seat, a that's a big loss for Republicans. It's a big loss for the Judiciary Committee, which he leads right now. Uh, and it will show that not only in these reliably red states are things changing, things may be going purple across this country much faster than anyone thought. Which means two years from now in the midterms and four years from now in the presidential, things could look a lot different. Oh boy, such interesting times. Thank you, Reggie. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. I can't even imagine what the numbers are going to be like tomorrow for people watching uh, the unfolding kind of U.S. election results as they start to come in. It's going to be crazy busy. This is Mornings with Simi. Yeah, the Fraser River is one of the most famous water systems in all of Canada. And we get glimpses of it in the Lower Mainland, but probably mostly when you're driving over it. And you probably don't think too much about it other than, it's got to cross this bridge and I hope nobody gets into an accident on it. It is the longest river in the province at almost 1,400 kilometers in length. And there's this new book out that just does a great job of exploring the Fraser and talking about its importance. And joining us now is Carol Blacklaw's author of The Fraser, River of Life and Legend, and Rick Blacklaw's, who's the photographer that goes along with that. Thanks to both of you for being here this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Now, Carol, I'm going to start with you on this. What is it about the Fraser River that fascinates you so much? Well, I have been walking and rafting through the Fraser River for probably 30 years. And for me, there is a treasure of activity, of, of outdoor recreation, history, and it is actually the foundation of, of very fascinating Indigenous cultures who have, have been on the river for approximately 10,000 years. And do you think perhaps we just take it for granted, like we see it, but we don't really understand its importance in history? I think for me, one of the motivators to writing this book actually was um, 
to hopefully change the traffic report of all all <laughs> things. Um, instead of traffic, instead of people going over these causeways and under the tunnel and having re- the, the traffic report read a crash on the Portman Bridge, it might be changed to something like in the north arm of the Fraser River on the Portman Bridge or, or going under the Fraser River through the Massey Tunnel. It would start to create more of an awareness for the greatness of this river that is in the backyard of perhaps three million people. And we we don't understand, do we, how significant it is in our day-to-day lives other than traffic. What? How key has the Fraser River been to the development of Metro Vancouver? Well, I think the river has survived Metro Vancouver, and I think it wouldn't be wrong to say that the river in the lower reaches uh, is in need of CPR. There's a lot of... Um, a lot of usage of the of that area for logging and for development, etc. But that being said, the reason I wrote the book in the way that I did in that memoir perspective was to give people a glimpse or an appreciation for the length and the beauty of the river and the potential and the hope on that river. I know that I interviewed geographers at UBC and they declare that river as still a wild river because of the vegetation coverage that that uh, lines the banks from its upper reaches in, in basically the Rockies all the way down. So it's a river of great hope. It is, um, it is in need of CPR down in the estuary. There's no doubt to that. Now, Rick, how were you able to capture that? Like, of taking pictures of this river, where, where can you possibly get a picture that sums up the Fraser? Well, to me, the Fraser travels through about five different countries. So that's why, for example, we have the different chapters, like the upper reaches, the, the caribou, the grasslands, the canyons, etc. So you almost, for me as a photographer, I had to, over the last, say, 15 years, I almost had to focus on what country I was going to go to and, and try to catch the character of that country. And, 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 of course, one of the values was the local people you met, if, if, if you had the time, which I did, and they could help out so much on what does the river mean to them in that section, for example, upper reaches uh, with the gravel or the caribou. So it, was, it, 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 it does take time to access the river. Um, the, the, the estuary here from, say, Vancouver to Hope is relatively accessible. And so that was very enjoyable. And there's quite a few people that, that, that have great knowledge about this particular section. So depending on local knowledge and little pickup truck and a camper, mm-hmm. I, I managed to do it. Good job. Well, one of my favorite places to go to see kind of how amazing the Fraser River is, is to go to like Dees Island Regional Park, right? Where you, you just don't even understand how much traffic is going underneath you through the tunnel because on top the river is amazing and peaceful and beautiful. What's your favorite place, each of you, to go to view the Fraser? Well, for me, it's always been the canyon section because in that area you've got the this giant fissure of the of two mountain ranges coming together and pinching the water. You've got the Cascades and the Coast Range. And in that section, the white water uh, is absolutely brilliant. And to ride a rapid on a very safe, large pontoon boat is absolutely exhilarating. And if people want to see that section, there is Hell's Gate. And when you drive from here up to um, Lytton, you can look down and see what what an incredible natural jewel British Columbia has. Rick? Yeah, for me, it's the grasslands, which would go from Williams Lake down to about just above Lillooet. And just imagine, as a, as a comparison, some in, in the estuary here from Vancouver to Hope, you have, we'll say, 3 million people. Well, in the grasslands, you have about 10 so it's great. I mean, I can go there in four or five hours, stand on a big on a bluff, and I can look almost sixty kilometers or forty kilometers up the river, and there's no one. So it's a real treasure in terms of uh, the changing light, the graphic nature of the uh, the landscape. And I'm always amazed that here I am, you know, only five hours from home, in this vast, beautiful environment. So that's for me as a photographer. Uh, yeah. that, that, that's probably one of my favorite regions. Well, hopefully people will think twice about it today, for sure. Listen, thanks to both of you for being with us. Well, thank, oh, thank you, you for having much. us.
That's Carol and Rick Blacklaws. They have written and taken pictures for the new book, The Fraser, River of Life and Legend. Gives you new appreciation for the mighty Fraser, actually. And you heard them say it. They'd like to hear a change in the traffic reports, too. People being more specific about which part of the Fraser they are crossing. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk a little bit more about what happened this past weekend. Of course, it was Halloween. Despite all of the pleas from health officials and everybody to say, please, 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 adults, no partying, leave it to the little kids so that they can have a good time. Doesn't seem like that happened in a lot of areas. For more on all of this, we're joined now by Nikki Reitmeyer. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, at your place Saturday night, we watched a movie and wrapped things up early. I was driving home around nine o'clock and I passed an elementary school that's on 16th Avenue there. And there's a big field there as well. And I saw hundreds of students, really? young people gathered. I, I, I honestly, I had to do a bit of a double take. I thought, oh my goodness, look at these crowds. Now that was nothing compared to when I got home and I looked online, uh. what was happening down on Granville Street, where there was thousands of people gathered trying to get into bars, partying on the street. Unbelievable. I know. I, it's, it's so disappointing because I just, I wonder like, did they hear the warnings and not heed them? Are they not hearing the warnings? Do they not care? Like what makes yeah. somebody think, oh yeah, let's just get together anyway. I'm going to say they just don't care. Because at this point, you can't say, well, I didn't know there was a global pandemic going on. Well, I didn't know we weren't supposed to gather because we all know this now. There's no way that you can say, I just didn't know. It has to be that they just simply don't care. And the scary thing is that they were endangering so many other people people who work at the bars and restaurants down there who had to work Halloween night. I know not all bar staff like to work on these big events because they know it's going to be nothing but trouble. And also the police officers who were down there as well. You know, Constable Lee Martin wrote online, he said, a group of us were swarmed by an angry crowd on Granville Mall after a street party arrested, had to call for code three cover. He said, no better sound than sirens surrounding you from all sides coming to help. That's how crazy it got down there. The police were being swarmed. Yeah. And you just wonder, so do we need, is it tougher enforcement that we need? Do we, you know, the bars and I know the bars are very concerned about this as well because they don't want to be shut down again. Right? Yeah. They, they don't want to have these kinds of conditions, uh, you know, have everybody shut down again. We have been, you know, decent, like the numbers have not been great, but I think people are like, well, we're not as bad as, you know, Alberta or Ontario or Quebec. I think that's going to change. I think given people's behavior of the last couple of weeks, I think we're going to see higher numbers. Yeah, I think we are too. And we know that things are bad in the Fraser Health region. And when you have people coming in from the suburbs and going into other regions, such as was the case on Saturday night, or very much speculated to be with lots of party buses coming in from the suburbs. Yeah, what's up with that? Yeah, I, I honestly, I mean, that's a whole. I honestly, How I feel like do I don't think they're gonna answer the phone, but I feel like we should be phoning up these party bus companies and go, "What were you thinking? Like, what were you yeah. doing? Where were you taking these?" people when you groups of however many people i'm sure more than six people in a party bus heading downtown to go to granville street i mean if you're a local to the vancouver area then you know that there's not much going on on granville street that's enjoyable these days because everything shuts down by 10 o'clock they're not serving any more drinks so you know as someone who lives in vancouver well you know i don't go to granville street anymore because there's not a whole lot going on so the speculation is that it was a lot of people coming in from the suburbs thinking that Granville Street was going to be the destination they're going to go to. But when bars start stop serving drinks at 10 p.m. and when they close their doors by 11, they you're going to have thousands outside. of people congregating outside on the streets. They're, I don't know, waiting for their party bus to come pick them up again, I suppose. I don't know. There should have been a better mechanism. Like, we should have planned for this. We should have made sure that there were, you know, people, whether it was city staff or police officers or whatever, telling people to move along. Right? Got to disperse. Got to disperse. Keep it moving. No standing around. Keep it moving. Keep it moving. Because otherwise, that's exactly what's going to happen there. And I think the rest of us really resent it, Nikki, like those of us that are following the rules. Oh, yeah. It just broadens the gulf between those two groups because a lot of people out there are sacrificing and, Mm -hmm. and trying to do the right thing. And then to see pictures like that from Saturday night just makes people blood boil, makes their blood boil. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I, I feel for, you know, enforcement officers who have their hands tied here a little bit, because when you're dealing with a big drunk crowd like that, it's dangerous for you to start handing out tickets, to start writing tickets, because you don't know what's going to set the crowd yeah. off and what's going to make the situation even more volatile than it already is. So it becomes very tricky to do enforcement in a situation like that. Of course, I, I want to see these people get ticketed, but I understand why police what? officers weren't doing it in that scenario. I'd rather see them dispersed. You know what I mean? Like if the ticketing is going to be dangerous for them, and I understand that. I mean, we we know how to disperse crowds. We do it after Canada Day fireworks. We do it after, you know, um, Celebration of Light. So we know how to get people to move along and disperse. Mm-hmm. And I just don't understand why we didn't kind of employ some of those tactics when we knew this was very likely going to happen, right? But anyway, we're going to talk more about it for sure. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. Ottawa relaxing the rules for a few border towns, including Hyder, Alaska and Stewart, B.C. on the other side. People in those communities can now cross into the U.S. or Canada for essential shopping and medical appointments without quarantining for 14 days. That is Global News reporter Kristen Robinson. So talking about the communities that are getting this exemption, which is long overdue for the people who live there. However... Residents of Point Roberts are still blocked from crossing the border, even though other places are getting those exemptions. So we wanted to talk more about that. Brian Calder joins us now, president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Tommy. Thank you for uh, attending to our Point Roberts, the plight of Point Roberts. Yeah, it. it is the plight of Point Roberts. Were you surprised that Point Roberts didn't make this list? Uh, I'm outraged about it. I, I'm happy for the other exclaves across Canada, and we're the only one left, and, or should I say left out. All the others are, are, are accommodated, and I think when the border locked down in our province, they locked their minds down in the government at the same time. So did you get any explanation as to why Point Roberts wasn't on this list? Nothing, and I gather that your media... Uh, Global has been pursuing them in Ottawa Mm -hmm. and no response uh, as of yet. And uh, we're waiting to see why we've been excluded in our exclave. Now, we know that it's been really tough for people down in Point Roberts. Now, I understand there's also been a kind of a ferry service or some kind of boat service that you put into place? Well, it was a whale-watching boat that they hired uh, in middle August, and that was supposed to be an answer, and it's absolutely no answer whatsoever. We're surrounded three sides by water, and to Bellingham, you're probably 16 miles in open water out there. So, you know, anyone that knows anything about the water knows that that isn't going to work. Uh, it'll work spotty. And, for example, it was Tuesdays and Fridays. Four times it's been canceled by weather, fog, and, and rough water. And this past Friday, they had six passengers. Come on. I mean, yeah. that's no answer whatsoever. And it's also probably pretty expensive. Well, it's about 40000 a month, and if you've got six people on it, you're probably paying $500 a head to uh, get them there and back in a nine-and-a-half-hour run. Whereas if we were allowed to transit, in transit, stay in your car, do not get out, leave Point Roberts, go to Blaine, uh, it would be a quarter of the time and no expense. Right. None. So is I that... Mean, you, can, you, can come, you can leave here in a plane, fly down 99 Highway, and land in Blaine, and that's all fine. You can't leave here locked in your car and drive to Blaine. What's the difference? Do you think you're not the problem? Out, you're not meeting anybody. You're masked up when you go through the border. We've got better port protocol here than Greater Vancouver has. I mean, our people are diligent here. But Brian, do you think part of the problem is that okay, maybe looking at it, they go, okay, well, no, they have this boat service and they they can do these other things. That you're not completely without help at this point. They're not looking at us at all. Nobody has been here from either government. They don't care. And that's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. So no help from the Washington state side of things? Nothing. They put in this stupid ferry. That doesn't solve a damn thing. It does not solve a thing. It's like the love boat. You go, and if it's a nice day, you go for a free ride on the backs of the taxpayers. That's ludicrous. What about supplies? 
You could drive across here at no cost to anybody and no danger to anybody. They haven't even looked at us, neither government. What about supplies, Brian? Like, what's it like getting supplies into Point Roberts right now? Well, that's the other thing. As an essential service, all the trucks, the delivery trucks, thank heavens, are allowed to come through. But they're not tested. The drivers aren't tested. They come through. They travel in transit, meaning they do not stop in Canada or British Columbia, which is great. So they come through. What if you put a bunch of people in the back instead of packages? Same difference. They're not seeing anybody. They're not stopping. And they're getting to lessen the stress on their lives, which is enormous. I mean, they can't go and see their kids over or grandkids over on the other side. It's shameful, absolutely shameful and unnecessary. What's the population been like? Obviously, a lot of people impacted, but how many people are down there right now? Have you been losing people? My best estimate is we're down to, we've, we've, we were we've 1250. I think we're down about 900, and it's the young people and the and the uh, and their parents. So the forty year, thirty, forty year olds, and the kids. We probably lost twenty three to twenty five children who've had to keep their school open for mm-hmm. the year. They had to move into Canada because they went to school in Ladner, Surrey. Half our population is dual. In other words, Canadian and American citizens, including me. I've got the two passports, and so when they're educating in British Columbia. In order to not lose a school year, they moved out. Now, even so you end the... up with a bunch of people 50 and older, my age, who you know, have their property paid for and they, they have enough income. They're sitting back sort of fat and sassy. But what about the kids? What about the middle age? What about the employment of the, the middle sector, the average, quote, average person? Our bank is closing here. There's no restaurants open through the week. None through the week. So even and with the dual passport, then, you don't feel comfortable moving between the two? Well, they don't let you. They don't let you go unless you're quarantined for 14 days. Right. If I go into, back into B.C., I have to quarantine for 14 days. Okay, so what's the next step here then, Brian? Like, you must feel like you're at your wit's end and trying to get some attention to this. Oh, it, it, thank you for doing uh, you know, making people aware of it. I mean, it's so simple and not threatening. That's, that's the key to me is if you allowed the, the, the locals here to issue them past Glotta Point Roberts straight through B.C., down 99, 25 mm-hmm. miles, into Blaine without stopping in Canada, like the tradespeople are doing to this day and the delivery people are doing today, yeah. every day. And... Don't tell me you can't monitor them. They know every move we make. I mean, they can take your license plate number from five miles in the air. They've got monitoring systems all along the border. They've got vehicles all along the border watching every move you make. So there's not going to be any miscreants getting away with anything. And similarly, as simple, you could take and give a pass to people who could demonstrate, and there's about 1,000, 1,200 properties here owned by British Columbians, uh, their summer places, and you could issue them a pass if they could prove at the border that they have a title, they own that property, and allow them to come in here once a week, once a month to attend to their property. Something. But absolutely getting nothing. And it's simple. If I can think of it, Sure as hell, the experts should be able to think about think about it. You would think, right? Listen, Brian, thank would, you very I much for hope. your time. I would yeah, hope. I would hope, too. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you very much for covering us. Well, we'll see. We'll see if we can get an update from you. That's Brian Calder, president of the Point Roberts Chamber of Commerce, and you can tell the frustration that is there. I don't blame him at all one bit. It would be very frustrating because the truck drivers, the deliveries are still coming but they won't let the people go down to Blaine in their cars. Uh, And he said they're getting no help, not from the Canadian government side or the Washington state side of things either. This is Mornings with Simi. We want to talk more about what we saw on the weekend, despite all the pleas, despite all the asking from health officials and everybody saying, please don't gather, please, you know, adults leave Halloween to the little kids this year. That just didn't happen in many locations, including 
on the Granville Strip, where the crowd seemed huge and it just looked like trouble waiting to happen. Now we've got some bars and restaurants that are raising the alarm over this, saying they're worried about this behavior. Joining us now is Ian Tossenson, the president and CEO of BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Hi, Ian. Hi, Simi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So are you hearing from bars about this, about their concerns? Yeah, I mean, I'm really worried here because we've got a potential. I know we just crazy on Saturday night, and I don't understand how messaging can't get through I know that people are frustrated, they want to go do things, but this happened later, so I think there's a couple of things that are going on here. We have 10 o'clock closing, uh, no more alcohol after 10 o'clock, and our, our, our transmission and incident rates of COVID seem to be going up. So the question is, are, are they better off to be inside in a controlled environment that we work so hard to, to put those protocols in place, sit down six people, distance, or we close and they will go do things we know that uh, people are, you know, uh, at 10 o'clock going to buy uh, alcohol and going to continue the party and continuing house parties. So I think there's something we need to do around this 10 o'clock closing. And, you know, the industry is prepared to step up even more if it has to. But, you know, by having what happened on Saturday night, you know, with a couple thousand people going crazy, um, it just puts business at risk. And And the business owners are saying to your question, we're really worried now that that's going to cause us to shut down. And if we shut down, it's probably never going to reopen again. So it's a real problem down there. It's so interesting, though, that their response is almost to do the opposite, saying let us do more because they feel that, what, that'll clear the streets a little bit better? I know it's it's kind of a, it's not an intuitive argument. You no. say, well, you're open, you're going to bring people down here. Yeah. Those people are going to conjugate. I get that. I think what we need to do is is we need to, up the education now the government's back and they've got to really come a lot harder on this kind of stuff we've got to up the police um uh presence in granville and yale town those are those are two hot spots and you know let people go in and have fun and then they just they've got to be forced not to conjugate so i think together we can do this what we all want to avoid is um because what i worry about Cindy, is that bars and restaurants on saturday were closed at 10 o'clock for alcohol and they still showed up. This happened around, you know, midnight. So, I, you know, what's really sad is someone in, you know, uh, I don't know, somewhere out in the valley is going to get their business closed because of a bunch of yahoos that just don't just don't care about it enough doing their thing on Granville Street in Yaletown, and it's not right. So we have to crack yeah. down here. I think the government's going to send a tough message. Dr. Henry's going to send a tough message. Um, we're behind it. Um, we've always been behind restaurants. Uh, we know of a few that we've got a lot of pressure on right now to close them down and get them out of the system because I just worry, Simi, as you know, we've worked so hard. I think we have the world-class opening plan in this province. But uh, if we've got people doing what they did right. on Saturday night, this is going to put all at risk. Do you think there is a way for authorities to do more here, like to move crowds along? Like, Do we need to just do better at saying, listen, you guys can't just stand around here? Yeah, I mean, you can imagine, uh, you know, I'll be, I mean, the police do a great job in Vancouver, but they might have to patrol, use loudspeakers, you know, I mean, it becomes a little bit militaristic, but we're in a pandemic, and if we do this right, we can get out of it quicker. But I think, you know, people see what's going on in the States, and this disregard for, you know, social distancing and masks, they get a little bit complacent here. So I think the police have to have a stronger presence if they can. And and force this, and I think eventually people will get it. Say it's not worth going down there and doing that because we just get harassed by having to move along or get off the streets or whatever. It's not fun. And I think a couple of weekends of that, I think it will clear the system. Well, that's what we're hoping, right? Because it seems like with the last couple of weekends, I feel like we should be bracing ourselves for these numbers that are coming up. Yeah, I saw that in the news this morning. Um, they're sort of previewing the numbers are not going to look good. And uh, and every time those numbers come up, then what happens is people go, mm, I'm not going out. So they retreat. And then we have this consumer confidence problem. So then that hurts business. And business owners are actually pulling back and not ordering because they're afraid they're going to be um, uh, closed. Yeah. I know for a fact that Dr. Henry is doing everything she can to keep the economy going and keeping it responsible. And we can do that. Yeah. But it's going to take the cooperation of, you know, 
several hundred people that just disregard the system to help us do this. Well, that's, and, that feels uh, like, and that's the key. And that's the problem, though, Ian, right? Like, if we do end up having to shut things down again, it's almost like we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Yeah, totally. This is like totally, you know, like Dr. Fauci said, we're just totally in our hands. We can totally control this. And so I suppose if someone doesn't want to participate in, in fixing this, and I guess we're going to have to get tough with them, you know, police presence and, and moving the crowds along and stuff, too bad, because um, that's way less than the damage will cause to the economy and jobs and all the rest that's at risk here. We'll see what happens. So, yeah. Ian, yeah. thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Simi. That is Ian Tossinson, the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. And you hear they are very concerned because they feel like if those crowds keep congregating like that, uh, then the numbers are going to go up, 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 and then businesses are truly at risk because they're going to be shut down again. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, it's been a hot topic of conversation all weekend long. The crowds and the pictures and the video that you have seen of people kind of gathering uh, on Halloween night. And it almost makes you think that we should be, it does make you think actually, that we should be bracing ourselves. I mean, the number of COVID-19 cases that we have had here in this province has been uncomfortably high for the last month or so. And given that behavior that we have seen, not just this past weekend, but just recently in general, is it about to get worse? Now, there is a live briefing this afternoon with Dr. Rekha Gustafson and Health Minister Adrian Dix to update us. And the word is that, yes, we should be bracing ourselves uh, to, you know, hear a higher number than we are, well, used to at this point. Now, that's going to be bad because then you start thinking about, well, what's going to happen as a result of that? We were just talking with Ian Tostenson, who is with the uh, BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. And quite frankly, uh, you know, bars, pubs, they're worried. They are worried that something's going to happen and they're going to be locked down and shut down again because of the crowds that people are seeing out there. So let's talk more about this now with the help of our guest. It's Adrian Dix, BC's Health Minister, who joins us. Thank you very much for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. Are you worried after seeing some of that behavior, some of the videos and stuff from this past weekend? Well, I'm, you know, it's irritating and it's in public and we've seen this before and with such events. And so I think all of the people out there who are following the guidance of uh, Dr. Henry and everyone else get irritated when these events occur. I want to say, and this is, I think, really important for everyone, though, that what we've seen in the last number of weeks is private parties and private residences, many associated with weddings and other such events and birthdays that have caused and are, are seeing a lot of transmission. So that's the reason for the provincial health order uh, last Monday by Dr. Henry, which said that there should be no more than six visitors in your home for, for any kind of gathering and that, uh, that uh, it's obviously preferable to um, not have those sorts of gatherings right now uh, was put in place. And so what we're seeing, and we contact trace all of the cases of COVID-19, uh, precisely as that's where we've seen growth. And we've seen some growth, as you could see from the numbers, in some business uh, transmissions as well. And so we're, we're taking action on all of that. Are, are you worried, or could more restrictions be coming when you see how people are behaving now, it looks like, in public? Well, I, I think, first of all, we have to put it in context, right? Uh, overwhelmingly, people are behaving uh, very well, are following uh, provincial health orders and uh, but clearly what we're seeing around the world, Simi, is a second wave of COVID-19. The transmission rates are 10 times what they are in British Columbia, in France, and they're too high in British Columbia, right? And so in France, in other parts of Canada, we saw in the United States this weekend, we see around the world, a very large levels of transmission in this period from COVID-19. I don't think people in BC care that much what the transmission rates are in Dublin or in Paris or in Toronto or Montreal. They care what they are here. And in Metro Vancouver, we've seen a growth in those transmission rates in recent weeks, and we, we simply have to take action. So the advice and the orders, which are the law from Dr. Henry, I think provide some important guidance right now. We all have to be careful right now because there's a lot riding on it, right? We have... Uh, 
We have relatively fewer restrictions in BC than other places. And it's important that we keep going at surgeries at the high level so that we reduce wait times. It's important that we allow more visitors in long-term care. It's important that we have schools functioning and businesses functioning and so on. And all of that depends on all of our collective actions as well uh, to reduce transmission. So um, that's why uh, those orders were put in place. And that's why the guidance has been put in place. And, you know, we see the signs everywhere. Wash your hands. Stay physically distant. We need to follow them. But this afternoon then, when we've got the briefing with the updated numbers for the weekend, should we be bracing ourselves for that? Um, look, any, any numbers for COVID-19 are serious. There's no vaccine and there's no cure. And some people in our communities are extremely vulnerable um, to death from COVID-19. And we've seen that even in British Columbia, where we have lower mortality rates than anywhere else in North America. So any numbers are are concerning. On Friday, there were 272 new cases of COVID-19, which in my view is uh, 272 too many. And so we have to look at those numbers and, again, commit to one another. What I think we've done well during the pandemic is that we're going to do what we can do uh, to reduce uh, the spread and the transmission of COVID-19. What more can we do at this point, though? Like, how do you get the message through to people who clearly they either they can't say they don't know about it? Maybe are they just willfully ignoring it? Well, I think there's a small number of people who may be doing that. But uh, Dr. Henry spoke on Thursday. I think um, uh, you show the briefings live. I think on CKNW, uh, she spoke about a case of a party that involved less than ten people yeah. and someone who passed away who got COVID nineteen at that at that party. So we have to reassess what we've been doing, you know, and um, I think everyone involved in that, uh, you know, obviously would feel badly about it and there was only eight people and so on. So what it tells us is that we have to um, review what we're doing, that we have to avoid uh, gatherings, especially indoors. And that's going to be challenging now. The days are shorter, the weather is worse, and we have a series of celebrations from Diwali to Hanukkah to Christmas to New Year's, all the things that happen at this time of year. And so this year, 2020, has to be a year where we celebrate such events with the people in our bubble, in our homes, and that uh, we avoid gatherings. And that's really my strongest message now. And that's based on the actions that Dr. Henry has taken, which are based on an analysis of all the cases of COVID-19 in BC. Do you, can you rule out any further restrictions or any more public health orders to make all that happen? Look, you can't rule out anything. What we've said, you know, from the beginning is that we're going to adapt all the time. And, uh, and so, and that's what you've seen. You've seen different orders at different, uh, different times to deal with uh, what we see out there. And so I don't rule anything out or anything in because we want to keep people healthy and safe. The other thing we have to consider, and I think everyone needs to consider, is the consequences, uh, the other consequences of actions we can take, right? And they're significant. Uh, those The consequences of not having in-class education for months and months and months on children. And we don't want to see a return to that. And I admire so much the work the teachers doing across BC to help make that happen. Uh, I think uh, we don't want to be cancelling surgeries for a couple of months because of the effect that has. And we saw in the overdose crisis the effect of the measures and the isolation on those numbers from uh, March on. So what we have to try and do is deal with COVID-19, understand the consequences of that. And that means, I, I just say this to everybody, that we all have to take responsibility for following the guidance and the, and the orders of Dr. Henry. And we have to continue to make the investments we're making. And we've hired 523 contact tracers, more than we had before, which other provinces haven't done, in order to try and manage our, our way mm-hmm. through this as well. All right, we'll wait and see what happens. Listen, thank you for your time this morning. Hey, anytime, Simi. Take care. Eh? Okay, you too. That is our Health Minister, Adrian Dix, talking about where we are at right now. And I think you're going to be hearing a lot of that messaging more and more as in think twice about what you're doing.